You've heard me mention Paul Benassi a lot, but in very general terms. To fully understand how Paul Benassi and the Johnny Gosh case factor into each other, you have to understand the long history of abuse that predates the morning of Johnny's disappearance. The Franklin Child Prostitution Ring allegations created a scandal that began in June of 1988 in Omaha, Nebraska, and it centered around the now-defunct Franklin Community Federal Credit Union. The primary focus of those allegations was Lawrence E. King, who had been the general manager of the credit union. So to lay out this story for you, in this episode, I'm going to share with you some pieces of a book titled The Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse, and betrayal by Nick Bryant. I'm also going to share with you some clips of a documentary called Conspiracy of Silence, which was made for the Discovery Channel in 1994 by Yorkshire Television, but it never aired. I want to be clear that my goal is to present information objectively. I want to formulate ideas based on evidence, because I have to be honest, in my scouring YouTube and other sites for every piece of sound that you hear on this podcast, sometimes I don't know what to believe, as some of the things I've heard and read have just sounded so sensational. So I will do my best not to lean towards any kind of bias in the Johnny Gosh case or in sharing with you the details of the Franklin scandal. In these clips from Conspiracy of Silence, you're going to hear graphic detailed accounts of sexual abuse against children, much more graphic than my previous episodes. So again, I have to warn you to please listen at your own discretion. That being said, this is a piece of one of the accounts that you're going to hear. This is from a former victim named Troy Bonner, who we will talk more about in a few minutes. Larry King was the same kind of sick fuck Alan Bear was, except Larry King was more violent, uh, more sure of himself, you know. I mean, I would, you know, see him fuck a 10-year-old boy in the ass, you know, until he bled and, you know, just pull out and stop and, you know, push him down, you know, and, you know, and then go out and, you know, meet with decent people. The purpose of this episode is to link Johnny's disappearance with something heinous that may have been hiding right in plain sight across the Midwest. We'll look into the possibility that maybe Johnny's disappearance wasn't an isolated incident, but maybe it was part of something that was much larger, nationwide even. This is episode four of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. If you look up Conspiracy of Silence on YouTube, you'll see it come up under the title Banned Documentary. Nick Bryant, in his book The Franklin Scandal, A Story of Power Brokers, Child Abuse, and Betrayal, even describes the rough cut as having a preamble just before it that calls it, quote, the program they didn't want you to see. They being the FBI, the rich and powerful politicians in Congress, whose sadism would have been exposed. Well, let me go ahead and squash that theory right out of the gate, because it's true. Yorkshire Television created this documentary for airing on the Discovery Channel in 1994, but it was pulled. But according to Nick Bryant's book, the real reason is a little boring by comparison. You see, Bryant was able to contact Tim Tate of Yorkshire Television, and according to Tate, Discovery Channel just didn't feel it was right for them. Sorry, I know that lacks the drama, but believe me. Filmmakers get told this kind of thing all the time. Plus, you heard that first soundbite. If you were an executive at Discovery in the early 90s, would you have put that in the same lineup as Nature by Design? 
The Franklin scandal is also commonly known as the Franklin cover-up, and there is in fact a book by that name too. It was written and self-published by John DeCamp in 1992. That's a pretty important name in this story, as John DeCamp was a former Republican state senator in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then he became a lawyer who would represent Paul Benassi, Troy Bonner, who you just heard from in the intro, and another victim named Alicia Owen. It's a web of intrigue that starts in our holy of holies, Boys Town, Nebraska, one of the most respected institutions in the United States, and spreads out like a spider web to Washington, D.C., right up to the steps of the nation's capital, the steps of the White House, involves some of the most respected and powerful and richest businessmen in this United States of America. And the centerpiece of the entire web is the use of children for sex and drug dealing and drug couriers, the compromising of politicians, the compromising of businessmen, but worst of all, the corruption of key institutions of government that have the duty and responsibility to make sure these things never happen. It all starts with Boys Town, Nebraska, a charity which served underprivileged or delinquent young boys that was founded in 1917 by Father Edward Flanagan. It was made famous in 1938 with a film by the same name, starring Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney. I'm Father Flanagan. I saw your brother Joe just a little while ago. We had a long talk about you, Whitey. Joe wants you to come with me to Boys Town. You've got a swell chance taking me to that joint. Probably worldwide, there's no institution other than Boys Town that has done so much good for so many children over such a long period of time so successfully. When an institution like that gets contaminated, purposes of abusing children instead of protecting children, then you better, if you've got any decency at all, uh, do something about it or, or at least get it cleared up. Lawrence E. King, also known as Larry King, was once the head of the National Black Republican Council. He was a rising star in the Republican Party. He's a large, burly black man, he wears thick glasses, and he has a circular goatee which frames his mouth and his chin. He was brought in as the general manager of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha because the credit union was actually failing. So, being such a charismatic fellow with so many friends in high places, King was able to build the credit union back up again. In Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal, Bryant writes, Throughout the 1980s, the middle-aged King, tall and corpulent, had been described as a GOP high roller. And he goes on to write, King also ardently campaigned for the 1988 presidential bid of his, quote, personal friend George H.W. Bush. In a flurry of name dropping, King told a reporter for Omaha's Weekly Metropolitan of his lofty connections atop the political food chain, quote, I know some of the people I admire aren't very popular. Ed Meese, the late Bill Casey of the CIA, and I love former Chief Justice Berger. Those are the people I really like to talk to. So, starting in 1979, King developed close commercial ties with Boys Town, and a lot of the boys would go to work at his companies. So, in turn, Boys Town had a lot of accounts that would get set up at the Franklin Credit Union. So this was considered a very positive and lucrative relationship for both ends. But unfortunately, this is where it turns sinister. You see, King was known for throwing extremely lavish parties for his rich and powerful friends, and it is alleged that these parties would include bringing in young boys and sometimes young girls for sex and orgies. So here's another clip from Conspiracy of Silence. You'll hear from Carol Stitt, the director of the Foster Care Review Board. You'll also hear from Monsignor Hupp, 
the former executive director of Boys Town. In 1986, King's plundering of Boys Town was reported by staff to the chief executive, Father Val Peter. Subsequent testimony proves that he carried out his own investigation, but that King's victims refused to talk. Nebraska has a very clear statute that child abuse allegations should be reported to authorities. They shouldn't be reported to the principal of the school, the director of a facility. They should be reported directly to either Child Protective Services or law enforcement. An internal investigation uh, at Boys Town would have no status. I mean, in other words, that evidence collected may be something that could augment, but it certainly could not take the place of an investigation, a criminal investigation. Could you understand why a very detailed report from a social worker employed at Boys Town identifying children and identifying their alleged abusers never saw the light of day? Nothing happened with that. No, I couldn't understand that because I know that had been, I wouldn't put up with that. But uh, is that something like that happened? I don't know. Well, in retrospect, I uh, regret having any association with. Uh, uh, Larry King, uh, had I known it at the time, it would never have happened. Basically, the children who were being sexually assaulted and abused at these parties were beginning to come forward with their allegations. But no police investigation would come out of it. And it's largely believed that that's because of King's status and the status of the rich and powerful politicians, businessmen, media, you name it, who would attend these parties. It's good to have friends in high places. Besides Larry King, Ringleaders were department store billionaire Alan Bear and the celebrity columnist of the Omaha World Herald newspaper, Peter Citron. With the judicial system apparently paralyzed, Larry King's political and business empire grew. He courted the Republican Party nationally and plundered Franklin's accounts to finance a luxury lifestyle of limousines, private planes and palatial homes, three in Omaha and one in Washington, D.C. However, that outrageous spending of Franklin accounts would catch the attention of the IRS. So in April 1988, the Franklin Credit Union was raided, and then it was closed by the FBI. Larry King was arrested that day, and it was discovered that he had stolen a total of $40 million from Franklin accounts. During the investigation of the credit union's collapse, in the learning more about all of these parties that King would throw for his equally rich friends, it was becoming impossible to ignore the allegations of child abuse. So a committee was formed to do a parallel investigation of King's embezzlement. The chairman was a Republican head of Nebraska's banking committee, State Senator Lauren Schmidt. The threats began almost immediately. Here's Lauren Schmidt. I received a phone call on the floor of the legislature. The caller did not identify himself. But he said, Lauren, you do not want to have an investigation of the Franklin Federal Credit Union. And I asked who I was speaking to, and they said, that doesn't matter, uh, but you shouldn't have that investigation. And I said, well, why not? He said, it will reach to the highest levels of the Republican Party, and we're both good Republicans. The night before we testified before the uh, legislative committee, I did receive a phone call at home that said, if you speak, you won't live to regret it. So, a private investigator by the name of Gary Caradori was hired by the legislature. It would be Caradori who conducted interviews with the alleged victims. One of them would be Troy Bonner, who was 17 when he was first brought into the parties by Alan Bear. Here's a piece of one of Caradori's interviews with Bonner. He uh, lifted me up, uh, kind of 
moved me over to the bed, said, let's get on the bed, and uh, put his head down, started performing oral sex on me while his penis was at my end. Uh, as they say, a 69 possession. Yeah. Alan Bear was a sick fuck. Didn't care, you know, wanted sex, nasty, you know, I don't even know if you can call it sex, you know, and uh, take it any way he can get it, pay for it, he'd like to, but if he had to take it by force, he would. There was another victim who spoke to Caridori, and her name was Alicia Owen. I met some guys there that were from boys too. And it was at that party that I met Larry King. At the time that I met Larry King, I did not know that he was Larry King. I, I had met him. It was the first time I'd ever met him. Um, a lot of it was um, me handcuffed with my hands behind my head um, and my feet tied. And, and doing different things. Um, uh, sometimes there'd be a guy straddling over my face. Okay. Most of the time, Larry King took pictures quite a bit during that time. I know it's difficult. I don't know. Okay. I and mean, I think I could have said no. Okay. But I don't know. Okay. And you know, Alicia, you're a victim. And uh, at the young age, let's go off camera for a minute. Larry King was also here. He came in and uh, we drank and did cocaine. I didn't do much. And he turned me on to what Larry King did. He didn't like me because, you know, I would, I would get high on drugs, you know, and I would question him about, you know, how can you, you do that? I mean, once I asked him, you know, he wanted me to shit on him, urinate on him, you know, and I did, but gladly, you know, I mean, you know, I even said to him, you know, you stupid fucker, you know, I mean, I just sit in here paying me money, how can you get into that, you know, and I, I got, you know, beat up by it, I came home here a lot of times beat the shit from, you know, misspeaking my tongue, so to speak, and you know, just tell him how I felt sometimes. Bringing in Gary Caridori did not mean an end to the threats. Not at all, actually. In fact, there's a very good possibility that those threats were finally followed up on. Gary got, he was, there was one piece of evidence I know he got that he was, that he even said he, he got one step ahead of him this time. He told us about this book, it was, it was like addresses, telephone numbers, names, he said if if they uh, if they knew he had it, they'd kill him. On July the 11th, 1990, Gary Caradori and his eight-year-old son, AJ, were flying home from Chicago. They had watched the All-Stars baseball game, and Caradori had been pursuing new leads. Investigators from the National Transportation Safety Board are in Harold Cameron's cornfield trying to determine what caused this private plane to crash, killing its two occupants. The bodies of Gary Caradori and eight-year-old AJ were found in the wreckage. National Transportation Safety Board investigators say wreckage from the crash is apparently strewn over a three-quarter to one-mile-long stretch in this field. The, the fact that the wreckage is scattered over a large area 
certainly demonstrates that it did break up in flight. The exact mechanism of breakup yet is still unknown. The death of Gary Caradori was a devastating blow to this investigation. Troy Bonner had said that the FBI investigators looked him dead in the face and said, if you continue with this story, you will go to jail. They weren't telling him maybe, they were saying you will not win this case. So they managed to coerce him into recanting his story. Alicia Owen ended up being arrested and going to jail on perjury charges. However, with the help of John DeCamp, Alicia was released from jail and Troy Bonner went back to his original story. So here's a clip towards the end of Conspiracy of Silence. You'll hear from the most senior detective with the Omaha police and then from John DeCamp. It's beyond belief that arguably the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States, in the form of Richard Nixon, could not prevent the investigation of Watergate, or that President Reagan could not prevent the investigation of Iran-Contra, and yet somehow this group of unnamed, unknown, anonymous individuals in Omaha, Nebraska have such power they can control and protect all of these people from being investigated. Those allegations are ridiculous. Well, first of all, Nixon did cover up Watergate. Number one, Bush did cover up Iran-Contra, at least officially. And Omaha has successfully covered up this situation. In each case, it was the press that exposed the problem. It wasn't institutions of government. They had been corrupted. They had been compromised. They were the ones doing the cover-up. I did a lot of online research trying to find out whatever became of Troy Bonner. I can't verify this story, but I did find some information that talks about DeCamp's 2005 edition of his book, The Franklin Cover-Up. In it, he writes, quote, In the late 2003, Troy Bonner walked into a hospital in New Mexico, screaming, they're after me, they're after me because of this book. The book Bonner was waving was The Franklin Cover-Up. Bonner was, quote, mildly sedated and calmed down and put in a private room for observation. When nurses came back to check on him early next morning, Bonner was sitting in a chair, bleeding from the mouth and quite dead. So no autopsy was done, but what that means is another victim is gone. I'm also finding it very difficult to find more information on Lawrence King, with the exception of documentaries and books. It's just like you heard John DeCamp say, and what I talked about in my last episode. It is the media that keeps the story going. The press exposes the truth. So if this is your first time learning about the Franklin scandal, you might be wondering where Paul Benassi fits into all of this. Paul Benassi was one of Larry King's victims. He would have him go out near Boys Town, pick up young boys around 10 years old into their early teens, gain their trust, and coerce them into coming to these sex parties. Anything starting to sound similar? We're going to talk more in depth about Benassi's involvement. That's up next.
Paul Bernassi was a victim of King's abuse. He was also sent by King to lure Boys Town youngsters off campus. We used to just drive around and go up toward our home. That's when we used to do some of the uh, scavenger hunts with picking up some of the kids. You know, just kind of win their confidence, become friends with them for a while. Start inviting them to the parties. The kids were 10 years old or older. As I've mentioned before, Paul Benassi had been a victim of abuse from the time he was very small, and that would carry over into his adolescence when he crossed paths with Lawrence King. In Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal, Bryant talks about his first meetings with Benassi. He writes, quote, Benassi, too, was averse to being interviewed, so I invited him and his family to lunch, mentioning that we would merely chat, and he accepted my offer. On a brutally cold Wednesday, Benassi, his wife, and their two preschool daughters trudged into the restaurant like they just finished the Iditarod. His daughters were bundled up in hooded snowmobile suits, snowmobile boots, thick scarves, and mittens. Benassi's smile was brimming with white teeth. He appeared relatively conventional at first sight, but the indelible black grooves under his troubled brown eyes conveyed a nightmarish past. Bryant goes on to write, As we ate lunch, I noticed two men in their late fifties, burly and casually dressed, periodically peering at our table. They had the menacing look of KGB. I struggled not to comment on their undue attention because it was possibly a figment of my increasing awareness. And Benassi's wife was already visibly agitated. After a lunch of spaghetti, smiles, and small talk, Benassi consented to an interview the following afternoon at 2 o'clock and gave me directions to his house. On the next page, he goes on, quote, Benassi had a history of psychiatric illness, and I had hoped to calm him down before I started the interview. According to the Franklin cover-up, Benassi had been a victim of extreme sadism and even witnessed murder. I lobbed a few softballs at him before broaching the horrors he'd reportedly endured. Just as I started hurling fastballs, Benassi's wife opened the front door. She reacted to my last question by demanding I stop the interview. She feared that their children would be endangered if Benassi talked. The day had been fraught with too many difficulties for me to abandon this interview, and I backed away from the darker questions. Though I attempted to placate Benassi's wife, her agitation was having adverse effects on her husband's psychological state. I found myself constantly comforting both of them, though I repeatedly thought of men in black driving nondescript brown sedans, kicking down the house's front door, and breaking all of us in a hail of machine gunfire. End quote. Well, first of all, you might be surprised to hear that Paul Benassi is a family man now. Well, he is. And I have to say, good for him, because... It's clear that Nick Bryant's interaction with him, that the past has left scars that will never go away, but back during Gary Caradori's investigation, Benassi was among the first victims to speak on camera. A victim of abuse since he was eight, Paul Benassi was present at many of Larry King's sex parties. Who were some of these people that would come to these parties? Media personality Peter Citron procured some of his victims from Boys Town. The kids he liked were mainly around the age of uh, probably about 8 and 13. It was mainly uh, fondling and oral sex with him. He did have some anal sex, but he usually did that with the older kids. But Citron's abuse of Paul Bonassi involved ever more sadistic parties. He and Okay. Just take a deep breath, 
whenever you were tied up, or was there anybody else present other than uh, you, Peter Sifkin, and Danny King? Yes. Who was that? It was Alan Barris and Kevin's, Larry King, Paul Marino. And uh, also Troy Bonner. Troy Bonner would tie you up? I was there. So let's look at what we have here. We have a severely abused young man. We have other victims coming forward. And the problem is the only people who can effectively put an end to the abuse and the trafficking of children are the very people at these parties committing the crimes. Leading the charge for justice, you have a lawyer, John DeCamp, a private investigator who would later turn up dead along with his eight-year-old son, and the foster care review board. What you don't have is law enforcement. So initially, the media did not portray these victims in a positive light. They were widely discredited. Again, that's what happens when the alleged abusers are the rich and powerful. They control the newspapers and the local news. So therefore, they control what information gets blasted out to the public. I've heard that people said that Gary Caradori coached me and uh, that he told me what to say, but the fact was I didn't meet Gary Caradori until way after I'd already talked to the Omaha police about the abuse and had named all the same people. And they didn't ask me very much about Larry King or, or, or even uh, Alan Bear at all. They treated the allegations that I made about the, about the people who abused me almost like a joke. The information did not come our way. It was given, as I said, to the FBI and Nebraska State Patrol. They conducted their own investigations of the information. The stories were of such uh, significance that the investigators first wanted to prove the accuracy of the stories. As they said about the investigation of the three, initially three and then a fourth person were telling the stories, as the investigation developed, it became obvious to the investigators that the information was not accurate, that in fact it was an entire conspiracy of, of allegations, none of which had any truth to them. I'm going to play for you one more clip from Conspiracy of Silence. This happens towards the end of the film, and it's a conversation between Paul Benassi and his lawyer, John DeCamp. Larry King's house down in Washington, D.C. Was, was, was a nice house. It was on what they, I guess, I believe it was Embassy Row because that's what they kept uh, talking about. There were a lot of flags from different countries when you drove around in the area. So tell me, Paul, how often did you come here? I was about 14, about 1981, and at first it was about three or four times the first year. After that, it was about once a month after 81. And who brought you here? Larry King brought me here. And this is the actual house where you... Yes. And what, you were used for sex there? Yes. Some of the parties, when they started off, were straight political-type parties with no sex. And then when some of the men had left, some of the politicians had left, the ones that had planned, they had planned on uh, engaging in some type of sexual activity, uh, that would come after the party. Some of the kids would be held downstairs in some of the rooms where if they acted up or if they started freaking out because of the drugs that they were on, they'd put them in a room that they couldn't get out of and they'd lock them in. Were there drugs at these parties? Yes. What kind of drugs? Anything you wanted. Cocaine, uh, heroin, speedballs. You're telling uh, me those speed. things were at these parties where you had Larry King and prominent politicians. Yes. Were they readily available to anybody at the party? They... At the after parties, they were readily available for anybody. Beforehand, they did it more 
uh, upstairs than they did anywhere else, and it was kind of in the back rooms. Were any attempts ever made that you know of to, uh, to expose this situation? As far as I know, nothing's ever been done, and most of the people that were in there had already been, I guess you say, compromised. King's partner in sex crime was powerful Washington lobbyist Craig Spence. He took youngsters like Bonassi on midnight tours of the White House. So you were in the White House then? Yes. And how, how did you gain access? Well, I came down with uh, Larry King, but Craig Spence was the one that arranged the trip for us. And it was kind of a, a gift for our services that we were doing. How many times were you on this kind of a trip? I came to it on two times. Two times? And. Were you used for sex on those occasions? None until after we left. After you left the White House? Yes. What it's, time of night? It was usually around uh, midnight. That is one heavy allegation. See, this is what I'm talking about. The details become so seemingly outrageous that I find I have to stop for a second and really assess what I believe. By all accounts, According to everyone who has interviewed him, Paul Benassi has all his wits about him. He comes across as completely genuine. He has nothing to gain by sharing this information. If anything, if all of this is true, he could potentially be putting himself at risk by sharing so much of it. So it leaves you really questioning everything you thought you knew about our country. I do not consider myself a believer of any kind of the wild conspiracy theories that you can find all over books and the internet. And that's something I admire about Nick Bryant as well, because in the preface for the Franklin scandal, he makes it clear too that he is not a person who subscribes to conspiracy theories. He looks at evidence, similar to director David Bielenson in his research for Who Took Johnny. He looks at real information. What are the facts that we have? And speaking of David Bielenson, for the duration of this podcast, you're going to hear me refer back often to an analogy that he used during the opening of my second episode. We have to go through different layers. The Franklin scandal and Paul Benassi's connection to it creates a whole new layer to the Johnny Gosh case. It may not seem like the two are connected, but what about this one key figure, Paul Benassi, that links the two together and the rings of pedophilia that he claims to have witnessed and to have been a victim of? In my last episode, you also heard in the report by America's Most Wanted that Johnny was purchased by a man called the Colonel. The Colonel that they refer to is a man named Michael Aquino. It would be impossible for me to give you all the information on Michael Aquino in the short time allotted for this episode, but I would like to give you the overview. According to online research, Michael Aquino was born in 1946, and he was a military intelligence officer who specialized in psychological warfare. Reportedly, in 1969, he joined Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, and he began to rise within the ranks. So in 1975, he founded the Temple of Set an occult pseudo-satanic order. I can't confirm to you that this was indeed Michael Aquino who purchased Johnny, but we will be delving into that more in my next episode. And trust me, I also understand that the story seems to be going off in a crazy direction. So we will be going through all of our info and try to separate the fact from the fiction. You will also see just how Paul Benassi's charges against Lawrence King would have a direct effect on Noreen Gosh and the direction of Johnny's case. Thank you for joining me today. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. You can also email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I forgot to mention last week, Faded Out now has a Facebook page. The URL for that is facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. 
As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for tuning in for episode four. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.